Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. This week I'm speaking to author Louise Hare. Louise is a major author on the rise. She was one of the Observer's top 10 debuts for 2020 and her first book, This Lovely City, was a BBC Two Between the Covers pick and was shortlisted for the RSL Ondaatje Prize. The book received near universal acclaim with blanket review coverage. Louise's profile is only continuing to grow, particularly surrounding the work she does to champion black British authors and writing. Louise's new book, Miss Aldridge Regrets, is published on the 28th of April. Louise, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Oh, thank you for having me. It's lovely to have you. I'd like to start off, as I do with all my guests, by going back to your childhood. You grew up in Warrington yeah. with your parents. Did you have any siblings? Yeah, I've got one younger brother. And I understand your parents are both teachers. Yeah. What do you remember about your childhood? You know, I was always into reading. I read a lot, especially Enid Blyton, which... <laughs> I haven't revisited since my childhood for well obviously I'm not a child anymore but obviously other reasons and yeah I mean I spent all my pocket money on books and our house was always full of books you know and your parents are both teachers and they both sort of lean towards the English side of teaching rather than the sort of the math sciences it, we were always encouraged to read um my dad writes a bit as well oh really yeah so what he's self-published right he writes stuff uh, like sort of detective fiction um, and stuff around World War Two. So he self-published oh, um, some stuff because he tried, he went down the whole trying to get an agent route, which was a lot harder when he was doing it in sort of the 80s because then you had to sort of print huge piles of paper out and actually physically post them. So, <laughs> you know, when I was sort of doing it five or six years ago, it was a lot easier to send an email from most agents. So, yeah, so I sort of grew up with that idea that, you know, reading was a good thing, writing, creative writing was you know, a good thing. Um, and so I did both of those things a lot. Oh, cool. What was the first book you remember reading? I mean, it was definitely Nina Blyton. Um, I can't remember the exact first one, but one that sticks in my head, I think because when you read a lot as a kid, you also often come across words that you don't know how to pronounce mm-hmm. and you don't realise that you don't. So you just make up a pronunciation in your head. <laughs> and so there was a Secret Seven book that I remember because I'd gone through all the sort of set readers at school. I think I was in like the top class of infant school at the time. And so my teacher was like, well, bring your own books in because we don't have anything left for you to read here. So it was like that whole thing of, you know, quite an old school primary school where you queue up to read a little bit to the teacher and then they would sort of correct you. Yeah. And it was the word determined that I think in my head I'd, I'd translated as determined. <laughs> um, <laughs> So that's why that particular, so Julian was determined about something and that's why that particular book sort of stuck in my head. I actually think I prefer your original pronunciation. (laughs) Determined. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Did you write as a child then? You talked about creative writing. Did you enjoy Mm. creative writing or was that something you just did kind of as part of school? I wrote a lot at home. Um, I did sort of research, but my research was from like 
August catalogs, Freeman catalogs. So I'd sort of build these houses in my head and nothing ever happened in my stories. It was just, I would create some characters and I'd put them in a the house and then I would go shopping for them basically <laughs> up the August catalog. But I also enjoyed doing it at school because you, I mean, one thing that's actually really helpful even today is the idea of just being given prompts. So the teacher sort of giving you these flashcards and saying, can you make a story out of like three different objects or three different ideas? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's something that sort of stayed with me throughout that idea that if you get really stuck, just look for a prompt and see where it takes you. So true. I, I have my nephew stay with me a couple of weeks ago. We went to the Story Museum in Oxford, which mm. is a wonderful little place. And um, we were in this room. It, it was actually influenced by Catherine Randall, the author who's based in Oxford. And she asked them to write something down or draw something. And they had all these kind of random like little toys in, in mm. frames on the wall. And it's so true because it was like there was a cow in a field. And there was a little bunny rabbit. And they had these little captions underneath. And as soon as he saw them, it started triggering you know thoughts for him mm. it's, it's it's just a really simple concept isn't it but it just works so well yeah I mean I still like to get story ideas they're things that I've seen stories that you've heard or come across in newspapers I mean how many books do you see come out and you know the author says oh you know I read this story and I thought it was you know too good to pass up I mean it is still it's just being observant in life isn't it and taking those prompts mm -hmm. from life rather than just off, off a flashcard it's interesting because one of the things I've been talking to quite a lot of authors about, we, you know, we've been doing this podcast since September 2020, which we did in response to COVID. And um, quite a few authors, when I was actually interviewing them, when we were really properly in lockdown, were saying that they really missed that, you know, missed going out into cafes or talking to people or just mm. walking around because that inspiration wasn't around them. Yeah. How did you find that? I, from, from what I understand, and we'll come on to your books in a bit, from what I understand, you'd already kind of written your books before lockdown had really kicked in but how did you find that time in terms of your creative process uh absolutely rubbish <laughs> so I was quite lucky that I'd finished the first draft of Misogyny Regrets because I had this obviously coming out in March obviously that came out like a week before the first lockdown and so I'd sort of set aside essentially that whole period of the first lockdown was supposed to be me doing events so I hadn't really planned to do anything well apart from those but then I literally had nothing to do so I thought oh you know I should be productive now because I've got all this time sat at home I should think about the next book and it, it was just impossible I mean I ended up the thing that actually helped me was doing other things because I just find it really hard I find it hard to read I find it really hard to even watch new tv shows so I was just going back to Netflix and re-watching stuff that I'd already seen like watching the whole of Shit's Creek again from the beginning um <laughs> just because I needed that comfort and I actually took up knitting, oh, cool. which really helps because it's sort of creative, but it, you can also just do it without, once you've sort of learned the basics, you can kind of just do it without thinking. It just sort of let my mind calm down a bit, which I think is what needed to happen. So by the end of this sort of hovel on that first lockdown was six weeks or so eight weeks or whatever, I managed to write a short story again, which was good. It was mad, wasn't it? People seemed to go in one direction or the other. Some people just kind of relished the time and space mm. to be able to write, to be able to read. I was exactly the same as you. I had a complete reading block, just couldn't couldn't read. And then I went to really basic kind of light, fluffy books that didn't really involve too much thought, but just made me happy. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's funny how it affected us all. I mean, actually, um, I'm going to dot around a bit because normally I do this in chronological order, but now we start talking about it, it's quite interesting because you mentioned the fact that your first book, This Lovely City, was published in March 2020, I mean, which is just rotten timing. I mean, it must have been a very strange time for you kind of emotionally because obviously it was your first book, a whole big build up to it and then for it to be published and then you're not doing the things you were expected to do. I mean, how did you kind of process all of that? Did you end up doing things online or was it literally you didn't do anything? 
Yeah, so it was a bit of a mix. So because I had lots of stuff planned for the March, April. So most of that stuff just went because it, it was too short notice. Mm. But then the stuff that later in the summer, a lot of it pivoted to online. So I actually really enjoyed doing that because it felt that I was at least doing something. I was really grateful for those sort of festivals and organisations that allowed me to still like reach readers because it was just, it was so hard with the bookshops closed mm. in that first period, especially. Um, I mean, I suppose I was lucky that at least my books made it to bookshops because it was in there when they closed. So I remember it was in the window at the bookshop in Clapham Junction. So I used to go and sort of wave to it on my <laughs> sort of daily allowed walk. <laughs> but it was just really odd. And I think it took me a long time to sort of process what was going on. But then, you know, for some, I mean, for some of the events, you were getting hundreds of people turning up, which obviously in real life, you wouldn't have, you would have had like 50. So yeah, and, and I got to learn, because I'm a bit of a technophobe, so it made me sort of learn how to use things like Zoom and yeah, I've tried to treat it as a sort of a learning curve, but I'd really like it if this book could come out into just a normal environment, normal bookshops. I could do some in-person events because I've literally only done, I think, two real in-person events sort of two years on. So, yeah, well, it looks like it's going to be. So let's just go back for a bit and then we'll come back to your, to your new book in a minute. So you, after you left school, what did you do then? Did you go on to study? Did you go on to work? What did you do straight away? Yeah, so I literally didn't know what I was doing when I was a teenager. So I was really good at languages. So then, of course, I went and did science A-levels, Does that <laughs> make sense. Because I, I did actually, I just, I chose teachers that I liked, essentially, was, was how I did it, because I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I did like biology, chemistry and psychology. And then I realised that I really liked science, but they were also really, like, I find it really difficult. And so I was like, I'm not going to do a science degree because I think it will kill me. <laughs> so I then did sort of been part of a young enterprise project when I was in sixth form. But I guess I enjoyed the sort of more creative side of it, sort of the marketing side. So I thought, well, maybe I should do business studies. So I ended up doing a business studies degree, which, again, I, I enjoyed for the most part, apart from the, any of the math stuff. So accounting, economics, no. But the marketing side of things was great. And so... I did that and then I finished and then I was like okay now what what do I do so I applied for lots of graduate jobs I got to lots of assessment centers which is kind of like a day version of the apprentice where they just make you jump through hoops and then you don't get the job or like one person gets the job out of 10 of you so I did lots of those that were really depressing that's the best description <laughs> of an assessment center I've ever heard you're totally right oh, I hated it absolutely yeah. hated it but often they were in London and obviously I was at university in Bradford so it was like a, it was a day out in London and they paid for my train and usually quite a nice hotel and I'd get like a hotel breakfast which I still appreciate so <laughs> they were you know ups and downs to that whole process but I came back to Warrington after I graduated and then my friend was actually working for a travel company and she was like oh you know they're recruiting like it you just talk about flying and stuff and um, I was like okay whatever I know nothing about travel but I ended up getting that job and it was supposed to be a stopgap until I eventually conquered one of these assessment centres but I ended up sort of staying and it was a company that was owned by British Airways and after a couple of years I moved to work for British Airways directly and then ended up moving to London and working for a company called Flight Centre for maybe 14 years, right oh, wow. until doing different roles and sort of moving to head office and things. So yeah, so working in travel industry. But even then, I was doing little odd things. Like if we had to write a report, not the most thrilling of, of writing, but you know, I was always the person that wanted to write the reports. And I did some of the copywriting for the brochures as well. So I was doing little bits and pieces. 
And then I was thinking, actually, I'd kind of like to do this a bit more rather than, you know, it's very nice selling holidays to people. But it does get a bit samey because people often want to go to the set a lot of the same places. And I was like, you know, I do need to branch out because I didn't want to be a big manager and, and to spend all my day in meetings because that's definitely boring. So <laughs> I was thinking, what, what else can I do? Maybe I'll try the writing. That was about six, seven years ago. So that was what made me sort of pivot into thinking about it, not as a career particularly, but just as something to, else to do other yes. than the day job. Yeah, absolutely. Some kind of distraction almost at the end yeah, of the day. Yeah. But you ended up doing an MA in creative writing at Birkbeck. Mm. Now, Birkbeck is part of University of London. Now, did you do that part time? Because they often do a lot of their degrees part time, don't they? Is that what you did whilst working? Yeah. And it was, it, I mean, that was because most people were doing it part time. There were a couple of full timers, but, you know, it's a lot of work creatively mm. if you were doing it full time, I think. But, yeah, I mean, the great thing with Birkbeck is that it is in the evening, it fits around work. And I think for me, what was also great about that was it lent itself to having a more diverse classroom. So most of us, you know, none of, hardly any of us were in our 20s. We were all mm-hmm. in our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, doing it around either a career or after a career. And so everyone had lots of different stories to tell. And it was just really interesting. And obviously, we, you know, we all go to the pub afterwards and, and sort of compare Uh, (laughs) how we were coping what our dreams and aspirations were for our writing and so yeah I mean it was really good and it was a really good year like quite a a couple of other publishers I was in a classroom with Abby Dare who wrote The Girl with Aladdin Boys oh really Uh, yeah JJ Bowler was published um he got his first publishing deal I think in the first term we're at Birkbeck so and there's other people getting tv deals and stuff so it was just a really inspirational place to be for those sort of couple of years that's amazing. I've been able to do it around work, which is just, you know, if I couldn't afford to quit work and just go, oh, let's give this a go. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's, that's a massive leap, isn't it? And like you say, to be able to kind of fit it into your lifestyle. The great thing about that is that it sounds like everybody that was on the course had gone away and done certain things and then had actually come to a point in their life where they're like, you know, this is actually something I'm really genuinely interested in. And that is the wonderful thing about kind of master's degrees, isn't it? Because people to, even degrees to a certain extent, but I think master's definitely is that people have made a real conscious effort to go into that next stage in their education, isn't it? And go, okay, mm. this is... This is something I genuinely want to do. Yeah, definitely. So these days you live in London and you have done for 15 years. What's life like for you now in London? It's pretty good. I've been here for so long that all my all my friends are here. And actually, even though I live in quite a small flat, during the lockdowns, what was great is that I actually live fairly close to the river. There's lots of parks nearby. So I had four different daily walks that I could do, which sort of kept me a little bit sane. And I think for me, especially writing historical you know, I can easily get to the British Library for research, for example, and yeah. I can go and look around, you know, the museums and the art galleries for inspiration. Um, I go to the theatre quite a lot. So there's all those benefits that a lot of there are downsides to living here in terms of, you know, I know that I could, you know, be living in a three bedroom house elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and it's always quite tempting, like I often wait up, like, should I move out? But then it's also the fact that, you know, I, I love my social life and, I think being based here is, is just handy for me, essentially. Oh, it's a great city, isn't it? So obviously you said that during lockdown you you kind of lost that creative spark for a while. Um, but have you got it back now? I mean, are you are you finding you're able to read again now and you're you know, all of you're back in the zone? Yeah. I think one of the things that I've struggled with I love it still is just getting into a routine because now that I am sort of writing full time, I'd sort of left my job in January twenty twenty. But I'd always had this sort of backup plan that I could go 
back mm -hmm. if things aren't working out whereas actually because I worked in travel my job doesn't actually exist anymore oh, wow. yeah. so um thanks to COVID I've sort of had to think okay I need to make this work I guess partly because I was lucky that this lovely city did have some success in the first few months mm -hmm. especially like I did get people contact me for like freelance stuff um, I do quite a lot of sort of manuscript assessments and that, and that kind of thing. When you say some success, I mean, this lovely city did really well, <laughs> particularly given the fact that it, it was published at such a difficult time. And it's great you're, you're now writing full time. How do you structure a day then? Do you try and give yourself kind of a work day or is it that you will do a bit and then do something else and then come back to it? I, I find it fascinating to talk to writers about how they spend their days. I try and make a to-do list for myself every day, essentially. Because sometimes I need to prioritise the freelance stuff. Depending, it depends what deadlines I've got. Essentially, sometimes I've got freelance deadlines. Sometimes I've got manuscript deadlines. But for example, at the moment, I've just handed in a manuscript, which will hopefully be the follow-up to *My Soldier's Regret*. So I'm I'm waiting for to see if it's acceptable to be edited, <laughs> or if it's just a write-off. We'll see. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I've ended up like working from home has been really difficult. So what I've done is sort of signed up to a co-working space. So at least I have. A bit of structure. I had to catch the bus there. So even though it's not far, it feels like a commute. It feels like when I get there, okay, I'll be here for the next at least three hours. That's sort of the minimum time I set myself away. Okay, I need to get all these things done. And yeah, and then other than that, just sort of making sure that I set myself word counts. Because I'm one of those people that, you know, if I get a deadline, I'm the person that does it like the day before. But obviously, when you're talking about like a whole book, it's really tempting to think, oh, that's not due for like six months. And then you get two months of literature and you're like, oh God, like I haven't written, <laughs> I've only written 20,000 words because I've got to write 80,000 in two months, which suddenly seems monumental. So it's just, the, you know, when I get a deadline, it's going, okay, well, I need to make sure that I write at least this much this month, even though it feels like it's not due for forever. So it's just a different way of working. Whereas when I was obviously fitting writing around work, it felt it always felt urgent because it was always like I had to do it. Otherwise, it just didn't get done. Mm. Whereas now I'm like, I've got all this time and it's fine. It's just like dangerous for me. <laughs> I'm exactly the same. I think signing up for co-working spaces are really good. I, I think those spaces are so fantastic. I'm sure they've done incredibly well as a result of COVID because there's an awful lot of people like yourself that work from home that weren't working from home before. Mm. And there is something psychological, isn't there, about going to work? You know, I've spoken to people where they've got an office in their back garden and that still feels like they're going to work. Mm. So, I mean, I admire anyone that can be in their house all the time and kind of have that mm. structure. I certainly would struggle with it, I think. So what was the last book you read? So the last book that I really loved, I'm going to say, is Vine Street by Dominic Nolan, which I read partly because I met him through mutual friends but also because it's set in 1930s Soho, which obviously mm -hmm. is where part of the social Regrets is set as well. So I'm always like keen to see where there are like crossovers with like research and, and things like that. So yeah, I mean, his book is definitely a lot grittier mm -hmm. and it really delves in, you know, he's, it's a very much a crime novel in, you know, the detective sense of the word, like the police side and corrupt police. And I just loved it. I think it's such an epic novel it seems like I think it's like 600 pages which some people are like oh that's huge but actually it's so worth it because when you get to the end and you realize how everything ties together you're like oh my gosh genius <laughs> I love it when that happens 
<laughs> and then you kind of want to go back and read it again and start to mm. see it all weaving in. It's exactly, exactly. And then also when I did meet Don, he said apparently the so Vine Street wasn't the original title. The original title was going to be This Bloody City, mm-hmm. but they had to change it because my first book came out, which was obviously This Lovely City. <laughs> which is also partly so in Soho. So they were like, mm. and then, and they're, not, they're not very much alike at all in terms of like the content. So I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. But so I, I did get there a good couple of years earlier. So yeah. But I think Vine Street sounds like a good title anyway. So yeah. it was meant to be, it was meant to be. <laughs> are you one of those people that always has um, more than one book on the go or are you someone that has to just focus on a single book at a time? I will tend to have... A leisure book, so something I'm reading just for fun. And I tend to also have a research book because I read a lot of fiction as part of my research just to get a vibe of, I guess, the period. So I've been reading Edith Wharton at the moment because it's that sort of New York, I guess, beginning of the 20th century. um, And there's sort of a, a timeline in this next book that I'm writing Hopefully, if it works, it's set in 1906 New York. So I just wanted to get into the drawing rooms and those grand houses of the wealthy. Not that my character is wealthy, but he does go into those sort of that sort of environment. So I was just sort of trying to get into that atmosphere a bit, I guess. That's interesting. Using other fiction for research, I like that. It's yeah. I often speak to people that say that they they obviously read a lot of non-fiction for research or kind of mm. academic stuff. But actually, I can see why that would work because it again, it's just another creative perspective, isn't it? Yeah, and I think because a lot of people say they don't like to read fiction that's too close to what they're writing but I guess because what I'm doing is reading fiction that was written at the time mm. I'm not I'm not reading contemporary historical fiction set, set at that time it's stuff that was written at that time so because the style I think is I guess quite old-fashioned there's not really that risk of me transferring it because I'm not going to write like Edith Wharton no it's not. <laughs> not so I don't have that sort of concern <laughs> I understand that so let's talk about your new book. We've, we've already mentioned this lovely city um, and we, we've obviously touched on the fact that your new book, Miss Aldridge Regrets, is out on the 28th of April. Um, let's just, first of all, elevate a pitch. Tell us about the book. So it's a locked room mystery or a locked boat mystery because it's set on the Queen Mary in 1936. My character, Lena, is a jazz singer and sort of a, a wannabe actress, sort of in her mid-twenties and essentially her life's not turned out the way she hoped, you know, she hoped she'd be starring in West End shows and being quite glamorous. But then this guy walks into her life one day and and basically offers her this opportunity, which is to star in a Broadway musical. And if she says yes, then he'll also give her a first class ticket on the Queen Mary. Obviously, it sounds too good to be true. And she's sort of umming and ahhing, but then that night, she sees a murder happen right in front of her. And she's like, maybe it's a good time to get out of London for a bit. (laughs) Things aren't going that great here after all. But then unfortunately she gets on board the ship and then other people start dying. And this is like, oh no. <laughs> oh no. Um, and then she realises she's basically part of something bigger. And so she's trying to sort of figure that out while also not get killed and also not be implicated in any of the deaths because it turns out that she's got links to stuff that's going on. Yeah, it's, it's really clever. It's like kind of quite a multifaceted story. So Obviously, what happens at the end? Did you know where it was going, the story, right from the beginning? Or did you kind of let it pan out as you were writing it? So I wrote the first draft and then unveiled the culprit. And then I, after I unveiled them, I was like, oh, it wasn't them after all. So then I had to go back. But actually, there wasn't that much rewriting because the actual culprit 
to me was then so obvious that I had actually sort of written it that way. So, That's so funny. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not a planner. I thought I'd planned it, but then it just went in its own sort of direction. That must be so fun, though, to be a writer where you're kind of almost like, what's going to happen in my own story? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it definitely keeps me on my toes. I mean, that is part of the fun that I was going, oh. I was like, oh, nothing's happened for a while. I'll just kill someone else. Um, <laughs> and then because there's, there's a romance in there as well, which which came out of nowhere. That wasn't in the original plan. It just, yeah, this guy just sort of walked in and I was like, oh, he's quite, he's quite handsome. Like, <laughs> 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 Let's see where this goes. Where did the idea of the story come from? Actually, so this started a similar way to this lovely city in that it was a short story that I wrote as part of my MA mm-hmm. where the feedback was this isn't a short story this is a chapter of a novel mm-hmm. um so I was like oh okay and so the short story was set in a Soho jazz club and it was about a singer on stage and she sees someone get murdered in front of her I mean it's not been transposed directly into this novel it is a different story but she at the end of that story sort of escapes and is going to Southampton to get on a ship to New York and so I sort of mentioned this to my agent and she was like, oh my God, that would make a great novel, like uh, Agatha Christie kind of novel, just put it on, mm. on the boat. And I thought, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds fun. And then because I was going to make up my own ship, <laughs> like a crazy person, because <laughs> I didn't realise how much work it would be to create an entire ship. <laughs> but when I was doing the research, I realised that actually because the Queen Mary was such a big deal, there's loads of books about those sort of inaugural voyages because the inaugural voyage was, I think, May 1936 and my book is set in the September. So I could, you know, bring up loads of, there were loads of photos, loads of stuff about things that actually went on on the ship. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to have all of that and yeah. move the date slightly because I think originally I was thinking of doing it at a similar time to this lovely city, actually, about 1950. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just moved it a little bit earlier, which actually was great because then I could have lots of fun because obviously it's that strange period that you know when I was writing this in 2019 felt quite similar in terms of you know Hitler was in power and then there was stuff happening and it was those dinner table conversations that were quite interesting yeah you know compared to what was happening I guess with sort of Trump and different things like that so yeah it made it quite fun and it felt I guess quite current as well even though it's set in the 1930s you could I could put in some of the similar conversations that I was reading in in the papers, for example, you know, yeah. what, you know, what do people think about, you know, going to the Olympics, for example, which had just happened in Berlin and, in, and things like that. Was it Berlin or Munich? I can't remember. Um, but in Germany. So, yeah. And it must have also been quite nice as well, because if you were originally planning on putting it in the same time frame to then actually focus on a different decade where there's completely different culture, completely different fashion. Because, I mean, the difference between the 30s and the 50s mm. is quite pronounced, isn't it? Mm. Because of the fact that you you had the Second World War in between and, and what then happened across the world. So I bet it was it's one of those things, again, that you might not have planned, but it was probably a good thing that it happened in the end. Mm. So if there was one thing that you'd like readers to get out of the book, what would it be? I think more than anything, and just it's fun. Um, I, hope, I hope it's a fun book. And I think... One of the things that was interesting for me writing it was because my character is passing. So she's Mitch Rice, but she kind of, especially on the ship, she's sort of, if anyone asks, she's sort of, oh, my grandma's Italian kind of thing, which was quite common at the time because it was just easier than the alternative. And especially when she sort of finds herself with these really wealthy Americans and she knows from experiences in London from things that happen. So there was like a real life famous actor called Paul Robeson, who was American. And he did a lot of work in London and he actually performed at the Savoy Theatre 
and was sort of kicked out of the Savoy when he was invited to go to dinner there because he was black. And their excuse was, oh, there are some American patrons who don't want black people in here, so it's easier for you to leave. So because she's aware of this, she's sort of decided in her head that on this ship she's she's going to be white, essentially. So I thought that was an interesting discussion. And part of the reason I wanted to put that in was because when I was first thinking about starting on the first draft was also when there was lots of that talk about sort of Meghan Markle and a friend of mine said, but how could it be, you know, is it racist if she looks sort of white? And I was like, that's kind of not how racism works. So I kind of wanted to put that in because obviously I'm mixed race. I definitely can't pass, obviously. Although actually I did once with an American who asked me where I got such a great tan, but I think he was just very stupid. <laughs> but yeah, I just thought, you know, it'd be interesting to sort of explore that. And, you know, if someone has the choice and obviously her own father didn't have that choice. So I, I kind of wanted to look at her thoughts around it and her, I guess, her guilt around it as well, because she feels like maybe she's made the, the easy choice and maybe that's the wrong choice because she's sort of denying part of her heritage. So I thought yes. it was just an interesting little thing to put in. Yeah, absolutely. We've talked about this lovely city. We've talked about the, your new book, um, Soldier's Regrets. How did the writing process between the two differ or was it very similar? I found Misology's Regrets a little bit easier. Oh, that's interesting. A lot of people find the second book more difficult, don't they? They do. But I think because this lovely city was so hard, <laughs> the structure of it. Oh, yeah, I just found this lovely. There were lots of aspects. I think some of the themes I found very difficult to write about in this lovely city because it does delve, I guess, more into racism and more, like, slightly more depressing issues, even though, you know, there's a lot of hope in it as well. So it was just a lot harder to write from that aspect. And it took like at least three or four drafts to actually get the structure to work in terms of, I guess, because having two main characters and then also the sort of flashback chapters and how that was all going to piece together. Whereas I think with Miss Aldridge, it's sort of one person. And I've written it in first person, which mm-hmm. was really fun just to get into her head a bit. And then there are sort of flashback chapters, but I don't know, I think because it's just a sort of a more chatty conversational tone to it, it is a bit of a lighter book. And I was really actually grateful in 2020 when I was having to get into the edits that it was sort of a funner book because yeah. I wasn't feeling in a particularly fun state of mind, understandably. So it was just, yeah. it was quite nice to revisit it. Whereas I think if I'd had to revisit this lovely city during 2020, I would have been like, oh, please don't make me. <laughs> God, it's funny, isn't it? It's just, it's so strange looking back on it now and just thinking how much our lives were just completely thrown into mad disarray. Mm. As a writer and as a reader, I always have a theory of people that read books that they have a book that has um, had a profound impact on them. And that could be professionally, it could be personally, kind of like a life changing book. Do you have a book like that? And if so, what is it? Yeah, I would say probably Fingersmith by Sarah Waters. Mm-hmm. It's a great book. It's got literary merit, but it's also really, you know, a genre book. And it has that incredible twist. Mm-hmm. So it sort of has, it just ticks every box for me because you don't, it, you know, it's just, it's like a safe pair of hands. You just, you know, you're going to be told a great story, but then also the story you think you're being told is not it. So I was just like, oh, genius. And I sort of love books that sort of play around and sort of do all those different things. So another one is actually I was thinking about yesterday was David Mitchell's The Bone Clocks mm-hmm. and actually and Slade House and how that fits together. Because again, you know, he's 
sort of revered as his great literary writer, but a lot of his writing, I think, is genre writing, you know, a lot of sort of sci-fi and fantasy elements. And, uh, and like Slade House is honestly the creepiest book I've ever read. So I was thinking about that because I'm, I'm trying to come up with sort of a ghost, a creepy ghost story mm-hmm. um, as a complete side project. So I was like, oh, I need to reread that because that really creeped me out. Um, <laughs> so I love books that sort, of, that sort of do that, that have great writing. And I mean, you know, there's so many different examples, but also that show something different. So thinking again about Fingersmith is that idea of telling stories that haven't been told in terms of the gay community, especially in London. So what I'm trying to do, is, I guess, is something similar with the black history. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say, yeah, retelling those stories and exploring what black people were doing at that time, because they were here. We know they were here, but what, what were their stories? Because mm. um, I think there's a lot of preconceptions. And so what I'm trying to tell is stories that don't involve just black people being servants for, for people, but actually the other interesting things, because a lot of them did own property and were doing more exciting things. So I remember my first book, which is unpublished, was set in Victorian London, and I wanted my character to be mixed race, but also middle class. And mm-hmm. everyone kept telling me, but, you know, you, you have to keep it, it needs to be plausible, it needs to feel authentic. And I was like, but it's based on a real person, so surely that is authentic then. You know, just because you don't believe it doesn't mean it wasn't true. And it was based on, there was a African-American Shakespearean actor called Ira Aldridge, who moved here in the 1830s and played loads of great roles and there was a a play made about part of his life as well with Adrian Lester Mm -hmm. which was really good that I saw that a few years ago Um, and his daughters went on to be an opera singer and a composer so they lived in a house now which is still there in Crystal Palace which is now like five flats but they own that whole house and they live there and so Mm -hmm. I wanted to sort of tell that story but I'm like oh but you know she wouldn't have had that option I was like "Mm, actually she would have but you know (laughs) it's so interesting isn't it the fact that you can even pull out like this is the person I'm basing the character on yeah you know it was a thing Mm. oh fascinating so you you you, what you're saying about fingersmith with Sarah Waters kind of inspired you to be able to kind of I guess have that voice to be able to kind of reiterate messages to people through your writing Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's telling, you know, as a big reader for a long time, it was hard to, it just used to really annoy me because every time I'd pick up some historical fiction, if there was a black character, there'd always just be a servant or they'd be there. They'd really be there for something bad to happen to them. So we could all go, oh, racism, bad thing. And then, you know, they'd be dead or something. <laughs> like, oh, it'd be nice if they could like, have, you know, something good happen to them. They don't have to have racism happen to them. <laughs> they could get married, they could fall in love, <laughs> you know, just anything. Have a nice day out in the park. You know, they don't have to get whipped or hunted down by people. Or just Yeah. So I just wanted to write about maybe some happy things happening to some black characters in historical fiction. Rightfully so. And, you know, I talked, I said in the introduction that you kind of, you're getting a reputation for um, being a voice for for black writers and for um, black fiction. Is that something that you kind of actively went out to achieve? Or is it just something that's evolved naturally through your writing? I think it's, it's kind of evolved, partly because, you know, I don't think I was bold enough to think, oh, you know, I can, I can speak up or, or do anything. But I think because, there was interest in this lovely city, especially when, when I got on the Observer sort of top 10 debuts. I mean, that was huge. Suddenly my publisher was like, oh, people want people are interested in hearing X, Y, Z. And I wrote a couple of articles which had great reception. And I was like, okay, maybe. One was published in I magazine? Yeah, see, in no. I. And then I wrote something for the Novelry website recently because it was a question I got asked at a, a festival about, will you always write black characters? 
I just was thinking about it after. I mean, obviously I answered the question, but I was thinking about afterwards, you know, would, you know, you wouldn't say to a white author, well, you were always right white characters no. um so I'd written about that and so we had some interesting dis- like discussions on my like, Twitter about uh, with other sort of writers of color about different things we've been asked at, at events you know I mean I welcome those questions I think they come from a good place and I'm happy to answer them honestly because I think again until we see an even playing field in terms of especially men of color being published because there seems to be loads of, of women that have come out in the last few years but not as many men so I think until we sort of see more people being published, it's going to be tricky. I think mm. even since I started writing that first book in what is getting published is changing and there are lots of more, more diverse stories being told. And it's just really, mm. it feels encouraging. I, you know, it's a work in progress, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I've, I've had my shop for five years and in the five years, the difference especially um I found a lot in obviously in fiction but I found a lot in children's books Mm. children's picture books a real range of um diversity coming in um in in all aspects it could be race could be sexuality could be um disability all these different things that when I first took over really weren't being reflected that much at all in the books and so that like you say it's promising still lots long way to go but it's it's moving in the right direction So you talked about the fact that you've submitted your manuscript for your third book, mm-hmm. really, which is very exciting. <laughs> so at the moment, you're just waiting to fit here back on that. And then is the plan to just continue working on that? Or have you got other irons in your fire at the moment? So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> hopefully I'll be hearing back in a couple of weeks if it's a go and then I can edit it. And then if that's the case, then I'm going to do this little creepy ghost story side project for a bit, I think, just as a bit of fun and see if it works. Just And also because... So Lena, who's the, the main character in Miss Soldiers, this is going to be sort of a series. But until the first one's out, I don't know. Like, I've got a contract for the first two books, but it's like I don't want to start the third one because everyone might hate, <laughs> everyone might hate them. I don't know. <laughs> so like, let's do something completely different. Take my mind off any stress. Because mm-hmm. waiting to be published is actually quite, you know, it is quite stressful. And I thought, you know, if I just have a distraction and then I've got a plan for the third book. So if they go, yes, we want the third book, then I'd be like, yes, great. I'll put Creepy Ghost projects aside. But I'm quite enjoying the Creepy Ghost thing. Because <laughs> it's just it's just something I've always wanted to write. And I think I need to take advantage of being able to, you know, if I'm writing full time, I need to be able to take advantage of that and, and sort of play around with some different things and not make it just a job. Because it was, I guess, my hobby. And I just thought it was going to be a hobby for a long time. Um, and it's just something I really enjoyed doing. And I think, I guess my worry is that if I, just treat it as work and just write to contract then it will it will take some of that enjoyment so yeah hopefully <laughs> no, that's a, that's a really fair point and also I think probably by kind of doing something else and then coming back to the series mm. you'll have fresh ideas you'll have a fresh perspective so I, that, that can only be good right yeah well it's been so lovely chatting to you today thank you so much for coming on the podcast and um, best of luck with the publication of Miss Appletridge Regrets and hopefully we'll see you at some point in the shop and it was lovely uh, meeting you virtually yes you too thank you All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.